tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to James Klein, design supervisor and visual effects art director at ILM, who has worked on the sequel trilogy and solo a Star Wars story. So whether it's the TIE Silencer, Lando's Millennium Falcon, or the final battle of the Rise of Skywalker, we really delve into so much of his process and inspirations. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 109, James Klein. There's a lot I have questions about, but also just, I always just kind of try to start at the beginning of someone's career and really just taking it all the way to early inspirations or what made you want to be an artist and... Yeah, no, I mean, it's all very surreal to me that I I have any association whatsoever with Star Wars because it's been such a part of growing up as a kid i mm-hmm. i was the perfect age i was eight when uh, empire came out i don't have a lot of memories of a new hope but when empire came out it just like it, it as with anybody at that age you know between then and, and now was just blown away by what they mm-hmm. saw and I, and I couldn't believe not only like what i had seen as a picture but what i had seen from scene to scene how it laid itself out from, you know, being on Hoth and then jumping into space and jumping into a swamp on Dagobah. Like I, my brain was just rattled in terms of like visual content. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I think that spark, I think I was a bit of an artist, you know, I would kind of doodle and sketch dinosaurs and stuff as a kid. But when I saw empire, it, it just, it just created this huge space to be creative in and, I think what George did was allow people to be like, there are no boundaries to your creativity and I'm going to show you there are no boundaries. Right. So in a strange way, Star Wars was one of those things that allowed me to, you know, be creative. Like give me, give, you know, the confidence to be an artist. I grew up in my, my grade school was, uh, was pretty much spent in Oregon. So we had a lot of rain and, and there was a lot of time being spent indoors. This is all obviously pre-internet, so I just drew a lot. I just sketched a lot, drew, and my imagination just kind of came about on paper um, at that time. That's Star Wars kind of was the impetus for, for all of that. I love it, especially those early Star Wars had such a focus on, like we were saying before the show started, like behind the scenes and that focus on Joe Johnson and Nilo and the sketchbooks. And that's what's mm. what I love and what we'll talk about is seeing that continuation with the sequels, with these show stack books is kind of hopefully inspiring this next generation. You know, the one thing that I left out of that is seeing the movie, but then going to a bookstore and seeing like Starlog, but then I saw the sketchbook of Empire Strikes Back, which was Nilo and Joe Johnston's sketches. So to make that connection, I had never made that connection. I didn't know how movies were made. Like I just assumed it's just like, wizards going in and just like building cool stuff and shooting it and like it it never had it it was always abstract and then when i saw that sketchbook i actually have my original sketchbook somewhere around here um it's i've got drawings in it yeah yeah. boba fett next to boba fett and that gave me like uh like a direct line from the movie to how the movie's made Mm -hmm. like are you kidding me they they actually started with (laughs) pen and pencil right on paper that's the genesis of how you made a movie and i think that 
that has always been with me from from way back when. You know, that's obviously inspirations and you kind of sketching and, and being an artist inherently. But then how did you maybe put that into practice, training and school and first gigs? Mm. Kind of what was that process for you? Right. I mean, what is that manifestation of, of being inspired by something that does seem so abstract to actually how do you create a career out of that? Right. And I had no idea. I, I took some art classes in high school and, you know, like welding classes in, in college. And then in, in an art class in high school, a representative from the Art Center College of Design in uh, Pasadena came and she showed these slides of like, you can design cars and, mm-hmm. you know, you can design products and um, there's photography and, and film. And, and I, I, again, my mind was blown. It's like, what? Like, you can actually go to a school and learn these tools. And so I took a class, like it was called a Saturday high class and it was for high school entry level. And I drove up with a, with a, a friend of mine uh, every Saturday and we'd walk around these galleries of people that had designed cars and, um, Sid Mead, I don't know if you know who Sid oh, yeah. Mead, I mean, he went to art center in the early, in the fifties mm-hmm. and it was in downtown LA. So to, to understand like, wow, Sid Mead went to the school. <laughs> I can get some of the same tools. I'll never be Sid Mead, but I can get like the same education as this guy. Uh-huh. It was like, okay, I've got to figure this out. And from there you meet people. So I went to art center for automotive design. I was like, okay, okay. I'm going to do cars and this is going to be my thing. And I got kind of halfway through and I was like, oh, do I want to design taillight housings for the rest of my life? <laughs> right. Like, unless you're like the chief designer at a studio, you're, you know, it's, it's, it's a longer pace of where you are as a designer, but in the film industry, you work on a film for nine months to, to a year or so. And you have, um, your, your kind of your turnaround of like ideas and creating things is so much quicker. So I, towards the end, I switched more into like a, a bit of a quasi film major. It's funny that you're bringing up kind of product design because we actually, we just interviewed uh, Gavin Bouquet, who was production designer for the prequels oh, wow. with, yeah. with a very similar background where he started doing product design in school. And actually his mentor, Stuart Craig reached out because it was, it's so inherent to sci-fi, especially that kind of product mm. design mentality because you have to create create products and create kind of a a feel that makes sense um tactically yes yeah and you um ultimately the hope is that you create things that um that look real right like they they look like they can function uh even though they're just made out of you know plywood and paint and right uh they have to look like they can function because the audience is they're they're smart. They can see when something doesn't look real or when something doesn't look functional. Mm-hmm. But if you give them enough to where it starts to like, you know, look like something, and I think that's the original Star Wars movies and, and going from the original all the way to now, they, there's a world that looks like it exists, and um, it's not so fantastical that it that you start to question it. There's always some grounding of it, and I think that kind of product design uh, education certainly played into it. I guess even before diving into your filmography, because your filmography, is, it's crazy. <laughs> like looking through just the, the IMDb itself, it's like, oh yes, every single movie that I've ever bought three times each on Blu-ray, you've worked on, which is great. Yeah, I'm tired, uh, Brandon. I'm very, I'm <laughs> exhausted, okay? 
I'm just so uh, tired. <laughs> what is your process? I'm sure it's evolved over time, but do you start with sketches? Do you like tactical or have mm. you kind of gone computer-based? Like what kind of is your process, especially when you have to start from scratch when you're designing a ship or you're designing? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a really big question and I'd have to go back to when I first started in the industry because when I first started in the industry, there weren't many computers in the art department. It was still done on drafting boards, doing real draftings, and then those those draftings of sets would be blueprinted and go out to construction to build. So as an illustrator, we were we were still drawing on vellum and, and pen and paper and photocopying our, our changes that we would have to make coming from the director or the production designer. So everything was analog. And then mm -hmm. only a couple years into it did you started to see people showing up with computers and Photoshop and early 3D packages like Lightwave. And you're like, oh, okay, this is, this is where it's gonna go. And I had to take a loan out to get a, my first laptop. And you know, I learned kind of on the job, but I always like to, I try to start with like a, even if it's the biggest little pencil drawing or pen drawing, I, I have these moleskin sketchbooks and what's cool is I've got them all the way back, I don't know, 10 years or something for that's great project yeah. and most of them are like really scribbled notes with bad grammar and spelling but some, <laughs> sometimes i'll do like a sketch and be like oh okay that's that becomes the thing and so i try to do that i, I use all I use all kinds of things now from uh 3d packages to, to like photoshop and to sketching it's kind of all over the place but yeah it started just with the simplest of tools it's crazy we'll talk about everything that you've done, especially Star Wars wise, that's very well documented, but it's so kinetic. I think it, it has su such a, a fluid sense of motion with everything that you've, you've designed, especially with how you laid all out. It's very, you said Sid Mead, in my mind, it's like very John Berkey. Mm. It's very, very cool. Um, Do you see that painting behind me, by the way? I was trying to figure out what it was. I, I need uh, to put a light uh, on. So that's an original John Berkey. It's holy <laughs> It's from this terrible movie. You'll have to look it up called Rise okay. of the Titanic. Okay. Really bad movie from the 80s, but it scared the shit out of me when I saw it. They, it's, it's a really dumb movie, but they, they basically put flotation devices underneath the Titanic and raise it up. Um, uh -huh. This is actually before they actually found the Titanic. Berkey had done this painting that I always loved. I loved like the cover on the VCR, you know, mm -hmm. going into Blockbuster. And uh, I got to know john berkey's art manager and mm -hmm. um yeah i i bought that a long time ago but <laughs> oh, yeah. i didn't yeah, I, I didn't say john berkey i was like oh yeah i'll say it just just because i see it. i did i literally did not even like like recognize <laughs> that as something in the blurred background that is incredible yeah but really really great. cool he's he's you know he i i'm fascinated with with um commercial art before it went digital i'm fascinated with real painters that painted for yeah. a for for a living um, going back to like the pulp novels from the 50s mm -hmm. and 60s like uh, i've got a few original pulp paintings too because mm -hmm. these guys were the ancestors to us where they they got paid by the painting they'd have to scramble and and work really fast um but they were all they were all doing it in gouache and and uh, yeah. acrylic so there was a time before I had kids, before I had a little more money, <laughs> that I would spend my money on yeah. art. But yeah, 
let's talk early, early films. What was that first like step into the movie making industry? How did you get your feet wet? What did mm-hmm. you learn? And and kind of we'll go from there. Yeah, I got um, early on one of my instructors at Art Center. He snuck me into the art department for <laughs> for Batman. It was one of um, it was one of the I think it was the George Clooney Batman. Was that Batman mm-hmm. Forever? Uh, that's Robin, Batman Robin. Oh, what was one with Mr. Freeze? So yeah. he snuck me into that art department. I wasn't supposed to be there. And <laughs> I saw, and he introduced me to all these artists that were drawing like Mr. Freeze's costume and right. Mr. Freeze's like vehicle. And uh, and I was, again, I was like, my God, how to get me into this industry? How do I right. do this? So I didn't I didn't actually get in right away. I, I worked for a company, a visual effects company called Rhythm Hughes for about a year. They were they were a big house in LA at the time. Uh, I worked on some Disney projects. Um, kind of just did a lot of different things. Worked on commercials. They had a commercial entity there, so I I learned a lot on the job um, doing that for a year. And then I got an opportunity to work on Terry Gilliam's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, uh, mm-hmm. only for like a month or so. But I got to meet a production designer by the name of Alex McDowell who did Fight Club and then would later mm-hmm. do um, Minority Report and he hired me on Minority Report. He actually did Watchmen as well. I see mm-hmm. a Watchmen book back there. But yes, um, yeah. like a lot of things, he was a great mentor early on in my career and supported me and you know, would always give me a call when, uh, when he was taking a new show. Um, and so Minority Report was kind of I'd done a couple small little films and then Minority Report was like, oh my God, this is real. <laughs> this is serious stuff. And it was great. It was, it was just before 2000. So Steven Spielberg wanted to do this, this epic kind of story about not only this crime, but the, the kind of futurist world that we can build around that and really understand where technology is going to go and, where transportation systems can go. So the the art department not only were like illustrating ideas, we were we were trying to help solve some of this like futuristic technology. Um, right. And then um, I met somebody, another production designer who's been incredibly influential on my career, Rick Carter, who um, was also Steven Spielberg's production designer for quite some time. Um, so he gave me opportunities like AI and Lincoln uh, I worked on early on which again like I, I think my most of my resume is sci-fi but but to work on a, a period piece that takes place in the Civil War I learned a lot that I did not pay attention to in school like, <laughs> I actually found it fascinating and interesting to research that time and that era and then to kind of start to work in in a visual style for that film and for the look that rick was really trying to push was was really was really fun i was young i was you know in my late 20s and starting to work on big films and working on lots and being able to go walk over to set and see you know your small influence there was yeah. was amazing to I understand why maybe architects get such a high off of seeing their designs like really <laughs> built. Cause when you like walk on a set that you helped design is there's nothing more uh, crazy and more of a push for your ego, I guess in a way, but, 
it's cool. It's it's like it's like the best of like that kind of storytelling dream kind of world that you can imagine where you're you're in a place you walk from like a hot Burbank, you know, mm-hmm. climate into an indoor air conditioned space that has like lighting and texture and and looks like you know the bridge of the enterprise or something it's just it's, yeah. it's it's a tweak to the mind for sure we could spend i think two or three hours just talking about minority report because i think that's probably <laughs> the best sci-fi movie that's been made in the past <laughs> two decades and like you said it really kind of is like this is not the best we can be but it is so it it really is kind of like a it's like if tesla made a movie and they were like mm. okay like what you know what i mean like how can we push the envelope anyway um so yeah no they, we we could we could have another discussion. <laughs> I'll, so, I'll start a different podcast just for, yeah. There was so much that we got to see. And, and because it's Steven Spielberg, he brought in the greatest minds. And we had like a three-day symposium with like writers and physicists and architects talking wow. about what it meant to be the future. And I was just a fly on the wall, kind of. In the, right. I, I didn't say anything, but right. listening to people like these futurists, like Doug, Douglas Copeland talk, it was like, it was, it was mind-blowing. Well, speaking of geniuses see these are really good transitions this is you know this is why they pay me the big bucks but speaking mm. of geniuses james cameron and your work mm. especially avatar and that was ryan church and rick carter yep. who you'll later work with with force awakens what what was that like again creating brand new worlds and kind of really defining something that it really is mind-blowing to think this was you know a decade ago mm. i went and i i don't know if you've been to the world of yeah or, or whatever it, yeah you know, it cra- crazy and it, it really is it, it's very understated with how impactful that movie actually is especially design wise and how very pinpoint it, mm. it was in, in setting a whole world yeah i mean avatar was a was a dream project it, it was um it was jim putting together the best minds and best artists around the world because he wanted to create this thing that had been essentially just in his mind and Mm -hmm. what i like about avatar is i think it's a very personal project for him because he you know he's more than just a filmmaker he's an explorer i mean he he went down to the marianas trench in a submersible that he designed like that's just that is just amazing so he i feel like he took a lot of his own personal thoughts and ideas not only about science fiction but about our world here about the exploration of the oceans and of our world on earth and and expanded that out into a much broader canvas for avatar but yeah so i spent most of my time on that working more on the kind of hardware side of it like the hell's gate kind of element and he wanted to deliberately keep that technology more almost like vietnam war era not mm-hmm. so pushed future, futuristically because he wanted a part of the film to be really grounded. I mean, we have nine foot tall blue cat people as, as <laughs> main characters. He wanted to kind of juxtapose that with like hard technology. And, um, and on top of it, it just looks like a Jim Cameron kind of tech. It's weird to say Jim Cameron mm-hmm. technology, but he has like an aesthetic that I think people yeah. respond to and almost expect. It was intimidating and scary as hell to work on a project like that because he's he's also he's also an art director he he was an art director and he right. I don't know if a lot of people know but he draws like a mother effer he came in right. actually I was sharing an office with Ryan Church at the time and he came in 
unsolicited, he just walked into our office with like a stack of his drawings of, I should, uh, you know, of the loader that from <laughs> aliens, of the alien queen, of the original exoskeleton from Terminator. And he said, hey, I guys, right. guys, I just brought these in, just wanted to kind of see what you guys thought. It was great that he wanted to kind of show these drawings to us. And what is amazing is his technical skill is equal if not better to, to <laughs> ours which is so intimidating as a director you're like okay well a director works with crew they work with casting really well and they know how to shoot a movie but on top of it they can outdraw you too it's like it was terrifying yeah. uh, but also just amazing to see the stack of original like movie history just plopped on your desk when you say J james cameron like drawings i always think of i think it's terminator 2 storyboards where it's the servos mm -hmm. in Arnold Schwarzenegger's arm. And he like, he maps out like how you do that. You know, he's like, okay, we're going to like yeah. have a fake right. arm. And, and you're like, this is great. Like this is, uh, he, <laughs> he knows, he knows the entire pipeline, which is, it's like, it's, it's, it's too much for one person, but he knows the entire <laughs> pipeline. Um, and then on top of that, he wants things again, going back to make product design. He wants to make sure that things function and work and, and yeah. aren't just bullshit. He, want, he wants it to be as engineered as you can make something for a movie production. Because also on your IMDb is Alita, mm -hmm. Battle Angel, but I think your work on that was very, very early. Correct. With, with a very small team, like 2003, yes. before this was even an idea almost. Yeah, so this was um, pre-Avatar, and Jim was going to direct a trilogy, potentially, of Alita. Mm -hmm. And we were concentrating on the first movie, much bigger in scope and scale than mm -hmm. than the film that they eventually made. But it was, yeah, it was like two years of just um, trying to develop this world, which was which was really great. Uh, working on Alita herself and working on the city and just the transportation systems, the kind of color palette, um, a lot of just like. It never made it out of the conceptual phase that that right. early stage. It was just myself and a few other artists working at Lightstorm for like in a <laughs> hidden room for for two years, and then he eventually put that aside and concentrated more on Avatar. I think he even had Avatar written before that, mm -hmm. but the technology wasn't there for him just yet. Like technology, the industry literally had to catch up to his ideas to make that happen. With with the sequels filming and about to come out, and there's all you know, people are like, oh, like who needs him or whatever. I'm like, you never bet against James Cameron. Like he knows what he's doing. It's always exciting when a new James Cameron thing yeah comes, no matter what it is, you know. And I'm excited to see. I know nothing about the new ones, but uh, what's wonderful is he handpicked uh, Ben Proctor and Dylan Cole, who worked on the first Avatar, as as co-production designers. And those guys are some of the talent, most talented guys in the industry. So. Um, they just have great wild imaginations, so I can't wait to see what they all come up with. I'm pumped. Okay, we're we're getting so close to Star Wars. Being so close to Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> this this uh, podcast is called. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, you're gonna have to... Well, okay, so we'll we'll get very close. I'll, I'll get right up against it, which is you also worked before Force Awakens with J.J. Abrams on Star Trek mm -hmm. on I think the first two. Mm -hmm. What was that process? What learnings did you maybe take from both being kind of in a similar world, uh, but also working with someone like JJ, kind of his artistic vision for things? Yeah. Each project, I think 
what's wonderful about working in the film industry is each project offers up all these new challenges and it it not only challenges the way you design but it challenges the way you think and i think Mm -hmm. first those first two star trek movies jj abrams wanted to do something that wasn't star wars it was you know it was a it was a clean universe it was it was more like Mm -hmm. star trek of you know the leaning on the technology and leaning on slick clean surfaces um most of my job on the first movie was um working on the narada that this this porcupine mm-hmm. thing which was terrifying because uh the production designer um scott chambliss said you know we have this alien ship we have no idea what it looks like <laughs> uh just start sketching and we'll start showing jj stuff and um and i had done just these rough really terrible rough sketches not knowing where to go but i did this kind of spiky thing um and he kind of responded to that early sketch and we evolved it over time but it it kind of evolved from this kind of just weird spiky thing uh and then i'd spend the next year and a half working on what's the interior look like what's the mm-hmm. bridge look like of this thing how <laughs> how long is it compared to the enterprise um so it was yeah it was a lot of that stuff along with doing other like Vulcan cities and stuff it, it was great it was a great experience got to meet Leonard Nimoy JJ brought him by the art department right because I was working on Vulcan city stuff I had to literally like show Leonard Nimoy artwork while they <laughs> stood over my shoulder. Uh, yeah. That was kind of terrifying. I was, I was sharing an office with Ryan Church again. I don't know how we wind up losing buddies <laughs> and all these things. Right, but, that's great. Uh, yeah, so uh, that was just one of those like weird movie moments that you can't believe are happening. But you got to yeah. keep a straight face and try to look professional. Yeah, very professional. <laughs> yep. Spock, Spock is looking at my concept art for his home world. Let's just, <laughs> let's just be professional. Yeah. Okay, so now Star Wars. Let's talk a little. Let's get into Star Wars with the Force Awakens specifically. How did you get involved with Lucasfilm mm. and kind of get thrust into this? Probably the biggest <laughs> sci-fi project of, of all time. Yeah. It. I mean, like so many things in in my career, I just kind of tripped upon it in a way that. Um, it, it seemed engineered, but it was not engineered in any way. Like I, I'd been living in LA for a long time. Um, I had a kid and we were like thinking, well, we had two kids. So we were thinking like, maybe we just need to change a scenery. And I've always wanted to work with ILM. I had worked with mm-hmm. them in the past indirectly where sometimes I would be in more, more of the kind of production post-production side of things where I, I, continue some of the design and then those would be fed to uh, post houses like ILM. So I knew them and obviously they just had this like crazy pedigree of, you know, history to them. And so I reached out and we kind of started talking and um, I started up there just prior to um, Walt Disney uh, purchasing um, Lucasfilm. So everything changed really quickly and I was working on another project at the time and then Rick Carter was brought in and we just started, they started a small team. They kind of put us in the back around a corner where we couldn't see any of right. us. And, um, and 
they had started some artwork. So I kind of came in a few months into the process and uh, it was, it was terrifying. It was, it was the hardest mm -hmm. I'd worked on a film up to that point of like, my God, like we have to, it's on our shoulders to, as well as hundreds of other people, obviously, but <laughs> to figure out what is the new Star Wars aesthetic? How much does it refer back to the original trilogy? How much do we bring from the prequels? And then how much do we push it forward? So it was a lot of like problem solving and challenges of like trying to figure it out. And I, and I had worked, started working mostly on uh, the first order design. Like here's the next generation of the empire. And I, I worked a lot on the, the um, hangar bay that you see, which is this kind of six-sided hangar bay. And we had developed this idea of a Pez dispenser, we called it, where the right, TIE fighters, the fighters. You know, launch out. And that was one of the first designs of, we'd done a lot before, more story beat kind of stuff, but that was the first like real design that started to get momentum as becoming yeah. like a real thing. Um, That's great. And then I worked on hallways for like six months, just to say, <laughs> it's amazing. Like you're working on Star Wars, but sometimes, you know, the hard stuff is like, or the mundane stuff is like, well, we're going to be shooting in hallways 25% of the movie. So we need to make right. really cool looking hallways. So, but yeah really amazing experience the star wars hallways i mean that's it's they're important they're iconic they're, they are they're in every movie they're they get you from point a to point b and yeah yep. from scene to scene i need them those uh yeah and even but like you said earlier world of pandora at disney world the rise of resistance star wars ride has a little mini pest dispenser right, right there in the in the so you know yeah. it's making it all very tangible yeah very no it, it's very cool like um even working on a hallway, I was I was so amazed to be part of it, and you get to learn a lot of the history of like uh, there was this art director Harry Lang yep. who was instrumental in the original trilogy. He had worked on uh, 2001: Space Odyssey, and he just has this very definitive look. I mean, he designed basically the interior of the Millennium Falcon to right. the hallways on the Death Star. So we we created a whole Harry Lang book of oh, wow. you know just printouts of all his work. Um, and kind of took that as the the foundation and then tried to push that that look but it's like things like that you find out are well what makes star wars star wars and there's a lot of things but one of them is well a harry lang panel on the side of a you know a, a hallway or in a control room or something there's a really interesting i guess it was a talk that you and ian mckay did I think right after Force Awakens, that kind of got transcribed into an article. But it was all about, again, what makes Star Wars feel Star Wars. And it really goes down to simplicity and mm. basic shapes mm -hmm. and, and being very recognizable immediately. The McCory and George Lucas were very, that was a very important thing. And I'd love to kind of maybe talk designing First Order. And of course, we had redesigned X-Wings and redesigned Star Destroyers. And, and you had to kind of create a world that was believably 30 years after Return of the Jedi, but still felt fresh and still felt relatively modern. Yep. What was that process and mindset for you going into it, especially Force Awakens, but did that evolve over the rest of the movies? Yeah. Um, especially in the sequel trilogy. Yeah, very much so. I mean, for me, so much of it is about just studying up on what had been done before and then researching how they made things, looking at uh, Norman Reynolds, the original production designer, and how he went about designing his sets and looks and and understanding why certain things looked the way they did and um that goes back to it all goes back to george lucas and like wanting he knew that 
a simple silhouette was not only readable, but it was memorable. So if you designed an X and that created a ship or an H that created a, a TIE fighter, like those right. things are great designs, but they're memorable designs too. So whenever I'm trying to design a ship in Star Wars, I try to make something memorable. It's not just a bunch of pieces put together. And mm-hmm. it's easier said than done, like um, designing Han's freighter for Force Awakens, it was scary because you're trying to design, oh my God, this the pilot is Han Solo. <laughs> it's too much. And we had done <laughs> we had done like a lot of great designs. Um, a lot of the mm-hmm. artists had done fantastic designs. And I think what's great about a lot of these ship designs like the X-Wing, from what I heard, uh, from what I remembered, George liked the idea of a, a drag racer with like a long nose and um, he was inspired by that. So you want to be inspired by something because then it tells a story. And, mm-hmm. and I had done some designs for this freighter and just, it wasn't, it wasn't passing JJ's level of like, he wants it to be, you know, it's gotta be special. It's gotta have meaning behind it. And one, one thing I did is I started putting in like little, Ralph McQuarrie images of like, okay, so we're influenced uh-huh. by Ralph here, or the Hans Freighter actually is influenced by the original uh, Super Nintendo console where the door right. opens up and you start to tell a story and and it it's less about the details and it's more about, okay, this is how we're inspired by it. This is a story that's starting to tell and, and, and lo and behold, it, it got signed off. So... Um, yeah. It's so much more than being able to like design a cool line or a cool shape. It's like, it's gotta be memorable and it's gotta be able to tell a story. Yeah. And again, I mean, not to like just keep giving you more and more compliments throughout this interview, but like your art, especially when you're trying to set that scene and, and make it kinetic and make it feel like a, a movie scene is incredible. And I think like, of course, like it's iconic now, the X wings over the water, mm. you know, like these things that are just solidified in star Wars fans minds now are part of this kind of process that you're kind of going through of, of telling that story, which is, you get lucky once in a while, (laughs) you know, ultimately it, it's, um, it doesn't come from living in a vacuum. You know, you're working with other artists, you're working with filmmakers and there's constantly conversations of like, what if we do this? What if we do that? And I think one of the producers was like, well, there's a moment in like Firefox where the jet runs low over the water and just creates this huge rooster tail. And can that influence us in this moment? And so, you know, I was tasked to like do an image of that. And and it was, it was just one of those ideas that you're given and then you have to apply your, your creativity to it and, and kind of make it happen. It, it really is. I mean, as we go through, you know, we can talk about Last Jedi, uh, the Kylo's ships, like the Silencer, or even just like the original First Order landing crafts, like things that mm-hmm. now are Lego sets and Hot Wheels, right, are, are like so incredibly designed because they just immediately fit within the Star Wars universe. And I'd love to maybe tackle mm. how you go about maybe start to finish or, you know, creating something as, you know, in my mind, iconic as the Silencer and how that kind of process works for you. Yeah. I mean, uh, starting with like the troop transport, um, again, it's like you can design, we can design anything we want now. We're not limited to, to our tools. We can do it any way we want. And it came from story and it came from JJ of like these landing craft that need to drop down in this village and deploy 
you know, dozens of troopers right away. And I was thinking about, um, you know, Normandy and, and the invasion in Normandy and these PT boats that um, just literally had a door on the front and just dropped people out. And um, I kind of designed it around that function and that idea and didn't really change it all that much. But because there was a bit of a story behind how we were going to portray that and then that fed into like, well, how did the stormtroopers all kind of line up? And they're just kind of holding on to like a little strap or a little bar. And that becomes a bit of a scene too. of like, you know, there's camera shake and leading up to this right. kind of invasion. The, the hope is that your design feeds into the story as much as, as it can. And um, mm -hmm. for like the silencer, um, I mean, Ryan was, he was one of those guys that you can really communicate with easily. You can get on the phone with him and have a conversation of like, well, what is this thing that you want it to be? And he just wanted something to feel very kind of sharp and fast and slick as kind of an evolution of the TIE Interceptor. I had proposed that we, the, the ball, as cool as the TIE Fighter ball is, what if we faceted it and just chopped it up a bit and made it mm -hmm. more aggressive? And I think that that really got him on board of like, okay, we can do something different, but it'll still feel like a TIE Interceptor. And I had these TIE Interceptor wings that were about the, length they were a little longer and then ryan would go okay let's make it a little longer and i'd kind of come back and go okay what about this length oh just go a little longer <laughs> it just got to this right. point where it finally like i thought it was ridiculous how long it was but it feels i think ryan in his head just wanted something again it's it's this kind of visualization of movement and speed so yeah i mean that was just a great collaboration with him as well as with the, the bomber and and uh the big gun on crate and a lot of yeah. just fun conversations of like well what if it's this <laughs> yeah no i i mean last shot i probably my favorite of, of all the, the sequel movies and it's because of these kind of things where it's like yes let's let's take this iconic thing whether it is like a death star laser or a tie fighter or whatever and let's let's tweak it let's let's really like play with what it is yeah and still create something brand new out of something that would initially just be um something old and iconic and, and really kind of turned into something that you would never think of moving in to solo mm -hmm. specifically because we're talking about these things we're talking about iconic ships the millennium falcon oh geez especially lando's millennium falcon i don't i you can't i don't really buy a lot of lego sets or whatever anymore because of space <laughs> so i have i have two i have and i haven't built it i have the razor crest right here mm. but then i have built lando's millennium falcon yeah. because it's just like it is beautiful. It's Lando's like my, my favorite character. And then like seeing something that is iconic and beloved, but something that feels so new and, and fresh. And then I've also seen all of your incredible Instagram uh, paint jobs for the Millennium Falcon <laughs> as well. So I'd love to talk about that process because I'm sure that was a lot of people that had a lot of different opinions of what the original Millennium Falcon should look like. And maybe just take me through, take me through that journey. Yeah. Utterly terrifying. The most terrifying <laughs> design challenge of all time for me personally. Uh. Yeah, because you take what is essentially the most iconic spaceship in film history and then you're asked to like mess with it. <laughs> <laughs> and mess with it in the in the most in the best way of like embracing what's 
been done and and making sure that you don't lose that too much but doing something new and it was terrifying it was it was utterly terrifying of like okay how do we not mess this up essentially is what i thought of every step of the way and i was able to kind of early on in solo start with the filmmakers and understand what the movie's going to start to look like and feel like and the falcon was certainly one of those and there are a few artists that were working with me on trying to understand what that was. And we even had some model builders taking the Tamaya model and we would add parts to it and then show the filmmakers like, is it, you know, you can imagine that the, the Falcon's under here somewhere because we built it on top <laughs> of this. So it was right. kind of like sketches, paintings, but also working with the actual, you know, scaled replica. Uh, I think it was the 172 scale, if I'm not mm -hmm. mistaken. And the, the first thing that really got me excited was looking back at, uh, I actually worked a little bit with Phil Shostak on, hey, can you get me all the history of the Falcon? And it was a deep dive in the historical context of the, like how they designed it. Because as you probably know, it, it looked a lot like the blockade runner in the beginning and it quickly changed into the saucer. And we were trying to like, well, what was that evolution? How did they go from this blockade runner to a saucer with a thing on the side? And there was one drawing that Joe Johnston did of it's almost like the hybrid of the two, um, mm -hmm. evolutionary speaking. So Phil was really helpful in trying to understand that story. And then what I kind of proposed is if you look at uh, Ralph McQuarrie's early paintings of the Millennium Falcon, there's a lot less detail on it probably because he just mm -hmm. didn't have as much time to kind of paint all that detail in. I used a lot of that as inspiration. And then we just wanted to do something that was more hot rod, more slick, more mm -hmm. something that was like Lando's personality, who's just smart and slick and is into probably things that are a little cleaner and a little, you know, he's into fashion, he's into capes. Things got to be a, just a, right. a little more finessed and not such a hunk of junk like Han Solo's Falcon. Right. And that played in the storyline too of like, we know we're eventually going to get to Han Solo's and the fun of it is that Han starts to fly this thing and it's a re he just destroys, just <laughs> yeah. tears it apart. Stretches so it. Yeah. to contrast that, it's like we wanted to do something very slick. So mm -hmm. it was a total evolution. We wanted to do something with the nose because we knew that that, whole front section that negative space was actually contained something it was a freighter so it probably right. pushed freight and we eventually just paused on you know okay let's just extend the nose out to a triangle it seemed like a real kind of perfect thing and then the colors was like a whole months and months of trying to <laughs> like figure out yeah. the colors and the patterns and i would like start to spin out of like how many iterations can i do and i did like a smoking the bandit pass i did flames mm. on it to like to <laughs> show okay we're running out of ideas but we're still super excited about where this can go and right and then the other last component of it well there was the whole interior too which we can talk about for hours but the <laughs> the exterior um we did a lot of work um just like killer um, model uh, cg model maker this guy masa at ilm we would just sit 
for like an hour almost every day for months and figure out all the little details like how do they relate to Hans Falcon and how do we kind of push it away from so there's like panels on it that relate like there's holes like on the front mandibles that we've covered up but you can still see into those holes like every little detail was gushed I love it. but it was it was it was as scary as it was it was like so wonderful and amazing and there was again a lot of people worked on it but it was fun to kind of be able to push that design into what it became that challenge is is just so so huge and y'all really just killed it uh, again one of my favorite just designs of this whole disney era and we could talk about solo forever because not only did you do that but the yacht i know you helped worked on yep. the monster the mom monster yeah i mean very yeah cool. i mean the at hauler was like a huge design challenge um yeah new walkers like we had walkers we, we were just proposing scout walkers for this mim bam mm-hmm. sequence and it was like this Dennis Murin thing of like, I was walking Dennis through our art department in London. And he's like, do we really need to see more scout walkers? Let's try, <laughs> try something different. It was like, well, we're influenced by scout walkers because of you, Dennis. <laughs> and so we kind of redesigned a, a scout walker because yeah. um, again, we wanted to keep pushing it. Yeah. I keep noticing throughout all of the solo design process, kind of a, especially when it comes to the war sequences, like you mentioned earlier, Normandy, but this becoming more of a World War One mm. aesthetic mm-hmm. based uh, with either even their helmets. How much did that carry you? And very much so. I mean, this was you know we had the prequels um, and they had been working on Rogue One. And the way I kind of would always pitch the design work that we were trying to push was if you can imagine George doing Solo before A New Hope. Like if he did it in like 1970, what would his influence, like, would he have different influences? Would it look yeah. different? And if it did look different, how would it look different? It would still have the, the look of Star Wars, but it might have more of kind of a primitive, heavier, chunkier, more, you know, the technology being pushed even further back kind of idea. What if ILM was working on Star Wars in 1973 kind of thing? what I always proposed. Moving to, to Rise of Skywalker, one thing that I have noticed, and you've mentioned it a couple times, but the ability to kit bash through the computer mm. obviously served very well through the process of having to create <laughs> hundreds of new ships, you know? Yes. Uh, what what was that whole thing? Because, you know, that final battle and more ships than my like eyes can, can <laughs> process the first time around, what, that must have been just like, enormously challenging having to come up with more and more star wars ships yeah no i mean the star wars ships are always a challenge and leading up to rise of skywalker you know we would design new ships but they were half a dozen new ships or something right at the most here we're asked to design like this dunkirk moment of thousands of new ships and right like oh my god how are we gonna there were some early discussions <laughs> where we were really sweating and, you know, ILM has a great resource of, we, we basically just tried to find every single ship, first and foremost, of like in the Star Wars universe that we had as an asset. Right. And if it was like a early asset, then we could take that and we can up it, essentially. We, and then we're like, okay, we have now 30 ships <laughs> total. <laughs> we'll have like a thousand to go. 
So it really was uh, leaning on, you know, designing new ships. The, the art department at ILM kind of came in and designed a bunch of new stuff. Steven Zabala did a ton of new ships for us. And then it got to a point where we're like, oh my God, well, we can, we can kit bash the ones that we've already designed, you know, for background stuff. So we had, we needed bigger rebel ships or resistance ships. So I just kit bashed the Mon Calamari once. I just asked right. for all our ILM assets and I just would literally bandsaw them in half or chop the yeah. wings off. And I think it scared a lot of people, but and <laughs> it, it, it worked because you're really looking right. again, going back to that silhouette or that simplicity that you mentioned earlier of like, well, if you just change the silhouette a little bit and put wings in the front of it, then it still feels like it's original thing, but it's different. So we were able to take three ships and make another 15 ships or so out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, and that goes back to the Lauren Peterson of it all too, of like, right. that's exactly what they were doing back then. Um, and it comes out of desperation. It comes out of like, because working on a film, Star Wars, you probably have the most time to to figure this stuff out. But even then, you're under pressure to make sure that because every day you're you've got thirty new tasks that you've got to hit. Right. So you don't have time to put your feet up and think, well, what is the next generation of the Mon Calamari ship? It's just right. like, oh my god, how do I make three more of these by the end of? Right the day because it needs to get into a shot in you know a month or two and it's yeah it's it's crazy but i like that kind of that creative crazy energy um Mm -hmm. and you feed off of it from other people from the effect supervisors from the directors from production designers and other artists and and it's it's exciting it's really exciting to be able to have that kind of that kinetic energy um, at that level because I think you come up with your best stuff when you're under a little pressure I mean for the people listening there is a great case study I think it's on ilm.com of the final battle and all the different elements mm. and all the incredible work that y'all did mm-hmm. and, like the beacon and all these things that kind of turned into a, a really you know cr- cr- crazy <laughs> crazy visual uh, and you know that each tiny part of that had to have been Hours and hours. Yeah, and each part of that expands into a thousand other avenues that we took. Um, yeah, because um, because yeah, you're 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 trying to find it, and through finding it, you're you're going a lot of different directions to get there. Yeah, so that little case study was just an example of a very small wedge <laughs> of you know everything we right. did. Uh, one one element of Bride Skywalker I want to mention because it um, you posted a really great photo I think on Instagram of Palpatine and the the machinations behind him and Kev Jenkins and, and working with that uh, really striking imagery again kind of a challenge right like mm-hmm. oh let's let's design Palpatine again like what process was that what kind of went through y'all's head mm-hmm. um, and how did you kind of help bring that to life especially or unlife or whatever he was. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, you know, as with everything, it all comes from the the screenplay and the story, and then expanding. Like, okay, well, what does all that look like? And Kevin was was on it very early on, so he had a big influence on like where all that world looked. Uh, he was a co production designer on it, so a lot mm-hmm. of that kind of went through, you know, 
where Kevin wanted to see that, but a lot of it also went like what what was JJ's appetite for how much we pushed the look of it and how much do we mm-hmm. do we kind of bring it back and a lot of the look of Palpatine also came out in post production design too of like the milky eyes and and adding kind of more of a a pale skin and more of a kind of a shadow that would drape over his face to make him look a little more nefarious so. He was a kind of a process process that went from the very beginning of the design all the way to, to the end um, yeah. to, to find that look. And, you know, his destruction, his world around him, too, went through a lot of design phases um, in post-production as well. Really, really interesting stuff is being able to to do all of that because you have someone like Ian McDermott to, like, play with. You know what I mean? Yes. Like his yeah. It's, it's such an incredible tool just to have. It's like, oh, we have this as a basis. Like one of the most incredible character actors ever. Like let's right. So, let's really push it. Yeah, you don't. You want to. You want to make sure that you um, you respect what that look is going to be and stay honest to it. But then, what are those little elements you can do to push it further? Yeah. Without ruining that kind of that look. Um. Well, I feel like I've <laughs> bugged you enough about so many incredible <laughs> things that you've done. If People want to find you to look at more of your stuff. Where where can they? Because I'm not going to ask about upcoming projects because I know they probably can't answer. <laughs> uh, but where can they find at least your your public? Uh, I mean, pages? the the best one right now these days is just my Instagram, which is Klein underscore Design C L Y N E. Like that's that's probably where the yeah. I have such little time these days to kind of keep the presence going online, I feel like. But Instagram allows me to kind of throw up an image here and there when I can't. But yeah, that's probably the best way to see where my art is these days, for sure. Love it. And then, yeah, of course, anyone listening knows how much I love these Showstack art of books. And so, and you're through all of them. I, I was Because like normally what I try to do before these interviews is sticky note. Like, oh, like, you know, they mentioned, here's one, here's one, I can go through it page by page yeah and then with you like i, I opened force awakens art of force awakens and it was like oh 200 pages or whatever of, <laughs> of james glad i was like well fuck, i'm not gonna <laughs> i can't sticky note this thank you again for coming on yeah no, thanks for having me brandon it's a great podcast and uh yeah keep going with it i i, I love it Thanks again to Mr. Klein for the incredible amount of time and insight into his iconic work. Follow him on Instagram at Klein underscore design to see even more examples. And if right now you can leave a five-star rating and review for the show, it means a lot and really helps the show out wherever you're listening. Next week is my interview with Terrence Mason, a visual effects titan who helped bring Star Wars into the digital age. So until then, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the force be with you.